1: some issues that got raised during the session regarding the nature of emptiness and oneness and the problem of universals. And that may seem very abstract, but I will try to bring it around to something that uh, is very practical uh, in terms of uh, what we actually are doing. But to get some perspective on the uh, issues involved, uh, let me start in the West rather than starting uh, directly
0: with Buddhism. Uh, In Plato, uh, we hear Socrates uh,
1: constantly asking about the nature of the good. And... Socrates says that people go around talking about uh, uh, you know, a good man or a good horse or a good knife or a good city, and they get into endless arguments about what constitutes these things because they've never settled on the nature of the good, sort of capital G in itself. And the assumption is that when you talk about a good particular, you're talking about a a thing that is imbued with something of this universal quality of the good, which exists separately and independently of the particulars. And, you know, famously in Plato, you have you know, what he calls the forms, these idealized abstractions of which uh, what we encounter in
0: this world are just, for him, shadows of the real thing. Now, Wittgenstein famously said
1: that this whole pursuit of a capital G good was, uh, was a fallacy. We get, we're chasing something that's a, uh, a mythical abstraction. And what we mean by good is actually something like an, an exemplary version of its kind. So if you want to talk about a good horse, you're talking about a horse that, you know, is strong and fast and, you know, obedient and things like that. It's all the things you'd want in a horse, right? It's it's really uh, the epitome of horsiness. And in the same sense, if you talk about a good knife, you're talking about something that's uh, very sharp, that has a good handle that you can grip, that is balanced in the right kind of way. So it has all the qualities you want to be able to use a knife for the function it's supposed to serve. Importantly, you don't add an extra quality, goodness, to sharpness and weight and balance to
0: the knife to make it a good knife. Goodness is not an extra thing, right? Now, the other kind of way that played out
1: was talking about the soul or the life force. And it seemed like people and animals were made of matter, just stuff. And then when it was dead, something had been lost, that the, the soul or the breath had left this, the body, And we were left with mere matter. And so there was a lot of discussion about what constituted the life force that had to be injected into dead matter to bring it to life, right? And that metaphor is what you see in a story like Frankenstein, where, uh, you know, Dr. Frankenstein gets these dead corpses and uh, hooks them up to, uh, you know, electricity. So he shoots electricity through them as a life force that brings them back, right? As if that's the life force that reanimates it. But it turns out there's no such thing. That like the good is like chasing a kind of abstraction that we imagine must be there but is actually a a mistake we make in in terms of how things are put together and work. Aristotle made a very good uh, beginning when he said the soul of something is its functional arrangement. So he said that the soul of a candle is the arrangement of wax and string such that it functions as a candle, right? That the string has to be embedded in the wax in just a certain way that when you hold a match to it, it lights and then it continues, it lights the wax and the candle functions. If you don't put them together in the right way, you just have a puddle with a string on top, right? And is similar. He said you, you can solve this problem of the life force or the soul by thinking of the functional arrangements of uh, the of matter, uh, just in the certain way, in the certain combination. And that's when they're all put together in the right way. That's what life is. You're not adding another substance. You're creating the proper arrangement. Just the way a house is the proper arrangement of wood and walls and windows and doors, right? It's only a house, when it's all assembled in a certain way so as to function as a house. If you take all the separate parts and just put them in a heap, it's not a house. The soul of the house is the arrangement, Right? Now, what I'm pointing to here is explanations that talk about relations rather than uh, uh, substances, right? It's the arrangement of things that is crucial to their nature, right? Not having some extra thing, whether it's goodness or breath or life force, soul, all that is a kind of way of talking about the arrangement that we that then confuses us into thinking there's a third substance. And then people go off in all sorts of directions. you know then the soul is separate from matter. It exists separately. It, maybe it's immortal. Maybe it uh, after the body dies, it goes up to heaven and reunites with God or something like that, right? And part of the appeal of those explanations is precisely so that we can imagine ourselves free from mortality and the vulnerabilities of a body. We can think that there's this additional immortal non-physical substance that maybe survives eternally. So there's an enormous underlying psychological appeal to that kind of explanation.
0: Now let's bring it over into Buddhism. A very common idea
1: at the time uh, the Buddha lived was that
0: each individual soul well, it was called an Atman,
1: was a little bit of a, a, a bigger divine soul or being, the Brahman. That there was a universal substance of soul, or maybe mind, or however you want to uh, imagine it. And it was this. Um, one substance that when all together was divine and each little drop or particular of it was human or, or animal. And one way of uh, picturing that, which Karen used in one of her talks, was to say that we start with a, a universal something and that that's poured into lots of separate little vessels. Sometimes it's poured into a bowl. Sometimes it's poured into a cup. Sometimes it's poured into a big basin. Sometimes it's poured into a little thimble. But that whatever it's poured into, uh, it takes the shape of the, thing, of the vessel. But really, in essence, it's all this universal substance. Right, it's all the same, right? Deep down, we're all made of the same stuff, right? And at the end of that talk, I told her I thought that was an excellent description of Hinduism, right? That that was the dominant uh, belief system that uh, Buddha was born into, and uh, which His uh, uh, insight and philosophy was meant to be an alternative to that. And so we want to try to look at what did Buddha realize that was so radically different than this Hindu picture of a a single universal substance distributed among all these uh, particulars, individuals. Instead of there being Atman, a soul or a self, Buddha said there was an Atman, no self, right? There, there was no essential substance or anything that is
0: uh, universal, that we all partake in. He did say, however,
1: that we are all part of one thing. Sometimes that's called one body. Sometimes it's called one mind. Sometimes we just can call it life. But our participation in that is described by him in a completely different way. It's a really radically different way. It's completely different than what I described in terms of uh, Plato and the good or the life force, and is much closer to
0: Aristotle's picture of the soul as a functional arrangement. The Buddha said everything is empty. And that meant
1: empty of this essence, empty of any single unchanging substance that uh, is eternal or that we all share. That's what empty meant, right? Emptiness itself is not a substance. It's not like uh, emptiness will just substitute emptiness for uh, mind or Brahman and say, well, we all have emptiness inside us, as if that's a a kind of fluid you poured into all these different vessels. Emptiness is not a thing. Emptiness is saying that there's an absence of that thing. So how do we understand oneness? Well, Buddha's solution was to say that because things have no essential nature of their own, the only way to describe them is to talk about their relations to all the other things. And the language can get tricky, because as soon as you talk about a thing in relation, you you can feel like you're talking about one solid object in relation to one other solid object. But he's basically saying nothing is solid in that way, and everything is dependent on everything else
0: for what it is. And one way I wanted to illustrate that was to talk about what we mean by a cup. See, to, if you want to, to tell someone what a cup is, you immediately have to start referring to
1: what, what it's for, and what you put into it. A cup is only some, is only a cup if you can put, say, a liquid into it, right? You might find, you know, uh, out on a walk, a rock, a rock that naturally has a big hollow in it. And you might take that home. But until you put it, hold it in your hand and try to pour liquid into it and then drink from it, It's just a rock. It only becomes a cup once it becomes in
0: relation to you, your hand, your drinking, and the liquid you're putting into it. The amazing thing, Buddha says figuratively, is that when you try to describe
1: anything at all, you immediately find that you have to start referring to other things. You can't describe anything by itself. What anything is, is only a description of what it's made of, how it got that way, what it's used for, how it's in relation to other things. In this kind of model, there are no no atoms. There's no pure
0: substances. So you can say that uh, you know, you could describe uh,
1: carbon as a molecule with this many protons and this many neutrons and this many electrons and it's an element, right? And originally the definition of an element was you couldn't break it down into anything simpler. It was a basic uh, uh, building block of matter. Now, of course, when, you know, as I just say, we see the, you know, the atoms of the elements themselves built out of all these uh, more fundamental particles and they keep multiplying, you know, seemingly endlessly. In, in the Buddhist terminology, There is no uh, elemental foundation. You never reach a kind of uh, physical bedrock. Uh, At least that's the the Mahayana uh, version of of this that we basically have grown up in and practice with. Uh, Buddhist philosophy is complex, has stretched over uh, hundreds and uh, thousands of years And there are versions of Buddhism in which there are elementary particles. Uh, It is complicated that way. But if we just stick to our own basic tradition, the fundamental idea is that it's relations all the way down. And that uh, the amazing thing is this fact that whenever we try to describe something, we immediately are, are pulled into uh, describing something it in terms of something else. And in the early philosophy, that was sort of technically all causal relations, but we can think of that in more contemporary terms as all sorts of relations. And,
0: uh, you know, if uh, I can say, Uh, the son of my brother is my son's cousin
1: what it is to be a cousin is definable only in terms of uh parents and their siblings the relationship of uh, the, the the nature of cousin is in relationship uh the nature of who i am is in uh what I do and what, uh, who I do it with, who I'm, who I'm teaching, who I'm a doctor for, who, uh, who I'm a partner to, who I'm friends with, where I live, what town I belong to. When I try to describe who I am, I don't go and say I'm this uh, feeling of awareness uh, deep inside me.
0: I try to immediately start talking about relations and functions. The example of um, cousins is interesting because we are very inclined to think that
1: for things to be related, they must have one, all have one thing in common. And that brings us back to this uh, uh, picture of universals, that we, we are all related because we each contain a little bit of something in common, one thing. But Wittgenstein, uh, again, made this very interesting uh, analogy about the phenomena of family resemblance. And he says it's a a fascinating and uh, irreducibly vague idea. Because if you look at uh, uh, people in a family, you get to get them... Uh, All the siblings and all the cousins and all the aunts and uncles and then all the grandparents and all the grandchildren. And you take some big group photo. What you'll see is that there'll be clusters of characteristics distributed through the family. Uh, Certain percentage of them will have dark hair. Certain percentage will will have, have blonde hair. Some of them will have freckles, some will have blue eyes, some brown eyes. Some of the blue-eyed people will have uh, freckles and blonde hair and some of the brown-eyed people uh, will uh, uh, just have freckles but dark hair. The point is that you could have 30 people in this big group photo And in one way or another, you recognize that they're all related, that they have a family resemblance. But there may not be a single characteristic they all have in common. There'll be this overlap of uh, relations and characteristics. Uh, But note one thing that they have in common. And that's the kind of subtlety we're trying to develop
0: in our picture of uh, what it means to be one or interconnected. It doesn't mean that we're all
1: sharing a single underlying universal characteristic. Though so the temptation to go in that direction is very strong. Uh, And it's like the temptation to imagine there's a a non-material soul that's separable from the body and can live forever. There seems to be also, almost psychologically, the desire to have us all be part of one single thing, right? And so even in Buddhism, you get people talking about Buddha nature as if it was that single underlying characteristic that everything has. But Buddha nature is like emptiness. It, it doesn't mean it's not an essence. It really means the absence of an essence. It means that every Buddha to have Buddha nature is to have imper, <coughs> excuse me, impermanence and interdependence. Buddha saw all things had that Buddha nature. Right? We're always confronted with the temptation to reify a description into a substance. And then we often put a capital letter in front of it, whether it's Buddha nature or emptiness or being, and we 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 abstract some quality from all these particulars, and we think that that is some underlying universal that we're going to be able to tap into. And as I say, that's the kind of thought that we can get in Hinduism or Christianity, but Buddha was particularly trying to avoid that.
0: All right, now what difference does any of it make in your practice? One
1: thing that happens to meditators when they think that there's something like capital B being or capital A awareness or capital E emptiness that is the ground of consciousness is that they get sort of infatuated with the fantasy that if they clear their mind enough if they can learn to sit with no thoughts and no feelings, they will get down to something that will then be pure awareness, awareness without any content, right? This, as far as the phenomenologists go, this is an oxymoron, it's a contradiction in terms, but it it's easy to create this fantasy, and I will be able to clear out all the extraneous extra stuff and get down to this foundation. And maybe I'll call it emptiness, and maybe I'll call it awareness, and maybe I'll call it being, but it, it has no content. It's pure, right? Usually it's going to be blissful. What it amounts to in in terms of practice is that we end up, because of this picture, in the pursuit of a certain special state of consciousness. We think that thing, this stripped of all its content, is the real thing that we're supposed to be able to go for. And the corollary is that what actually happens in meditation where you can't make all your thoughts go away, you can't make all the sensations of your body go away, Uh, wherever you go, there you are, and you, you can't escape that. You end up in this, either this pursuit of a fantasized state of consciousness, or you end up in a kind of endless feeling of I'm not good enough. I'm not doing it right. I'm never really being able to achieve the state that's the real thing, right? And that's a pretty uh, depressing and pernicious outcome. And it's really the the byproduct of this this certain kind of philosophical uh, dilemma that fantasizes universals and thinks that we're supposed to purify ourselves until we get down and are directly in touch with one of those universals. So that's what I'm trying to uh, free you from, the false pursuit of some, uh, some fantasy like that and, and, and that feeling that you're never doing it right because it's never clear and pure, All right? That's the difference it makes. So I hope this is a a little clearer than it was in the session. I will uh, uh, just have an open uh, discussion and Q&A at the end of sitting today. And if uh, there are any questions about it,
0: I hope I can finally clear it up. Thank you.